0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about 12 days, whether those are 12 days of post-Christmas sales or pre-holiday consumerism. Inappropriate Conversations, and me in particular, wish, would like to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. I'm anticipating that this could be a short and quick show, certainly compared to some of the other ones that I've done in the last two or three months, because my point is really pretty simple, and it's borne along this idea that I've been sharing a lot lately of how much we presume everybody knows, from the biblical illiteracy show a couple of years, a year and a half ago maybe, To now, I've been hitting, on a consistent basis, this idea that maybe everybody knows things that, in truth, everybody doesn't really know. For example, the 12 days of Christmas, when I was originally slating the rest of my plan for this year, I would targeted it for a weekend or two back, somewhere around the point of December 13th and 14th, because that would be approximately 12 days before Christmas. Now, as it happens, the world gets in the way, especially this time of year, Dan Carlin, his podcast, talks about this all the time, that December is a particularly difficult time to work from home and maintain a schedule of recording. There's just too much going on. But the other thing I realized was that was going to send the exact wrong message. Because the 12 days of Christmas, at least as we think of it from a religious perspective, or even from the perspective of what is being signified in this song, if anything, are the 12 days that start on the 25th and proceed forward into January. In other words, the 12 days of Christmas are not 12 days before the holiday, they're the 12 days after. And this is an excellent example of the kind of things that I've got to be careful not to assume that everybody knows. So as I get into this topic, and I want to talk about other things that I think I probably shouldn't assume everybody knows. For example, Inappropriate Conversations is a Podbean podcast. And for the longest time, I was listing here the Podbean website for how to access the show. Anybody who's still trying to get to Inappropriate Conversations as a website using the Podbean URL is probably running into an a orange-colored landing page of sorts. Now, the way to get to Inappropriate Conversations, the website, is www.inappropriateconversations.org. As I've done from the very beginning, all the Inappropriate Conversation episodes are still there. Uh, I'm maintaining them, I guess, by not removing any. Comments are enabled where the show note blurb can be found. On occasion, there are blog post entries as well, although it's been a little while since i put up a blog post entry or even an introductory statement of what's about to come. But that's one way of interacting with inappropriate conversations is through inappropriateconversations.org, which is a gateway into the Podbean site. Another way is through SoundCloud. I've recently completed the process of uploading clips. Not entire episodes, but clips. Some of them fairly short, some of them significantly long, from the first year of Inappropriate Conversations. I've covered all the way from from 1 through 49, and I continue to uh, plan to proceed with that as as I go into the new year. So, at the time I'm making this recording, uh, 50 clips are up there because for the 48th episode I included two One clip from the show, one clip from the different drummer, but I've now reached 49 shows that have been shared in this manner, and some people might have seen them because I do link to the new things that I put up through SoundCloud on both Twitter and Facebook. So to go there, from the perspective of Twitter, I am at IC underscore Greg, and I refer to both the uh, updates related to the Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations podcasts using that same Twitter feed, that same at IC underscore Greg. For Facebook, though... I maintain them separately. Walk the Earth has a smaller following at this point in time on Facebook, but there's a page for Walk the Earth. You'll, you'll know it when you land there. It's a, The butterfly is the profile picture. And I still, at this point in time, have a single rose laying on a sandy beach as the background, the cover art for that one. And for The Inappropriate Conversations... Facebook page. Uh, that one's the one listed as a cause. It does have more than 100 followers now, which I'm grateful for, but it also is the one where I've tended to put more of the, uh, the straight up political material. It's not that I've divided the focus between the two, where one is political and one is religious. It's not at all what I would have had in mind doing, but it's just in terms of the focus of the program, uh, one of them is far more uh, secular than the other, I guess would be the way that I would word that. You'll know you've reached the Right Inappropriate Conversations page on Facebook, not just because you found the one that's a uh, listed as a cause, but also as it stands today, the familiar Inappropriate Conversations show art uh, put together by my good friend Karen years ago when this was just an idea is there as the profile. The cover art is a quote from Anne Lamott. I first noticed it uh, several years ago when I, I caught it, I think shared from the What Some Would Call Lies podcast, Mike Lawson, Put this out there. And in Lamont's quote, I think, does speak very well to the personal storytelling aspects of what I try to do on uh, both these podcasts, but inappropriate conversations in particular, probably a touch more nostalgic. Here's that quote You own everything that happened to you. Tell your stories. If people wanted you to write warmly about them, they should have behaved better. I've tried to maintain a very strict divide between the things that are part of my personal and family life and the things that are part of the podcast. There are a couple of reasons for it, and I'm reminded of it this time of year. One of the reasons is that I think that from a a kind of a work perspective, and even from the role that I play directly within a church congregation, I need to make sure that what I'm doing is, is isolated appropriately as a ministry, and gives me a safe base from which to do outreach. In other words, what I'm doing here should have no reflection upon any one particular congregation, or any one particular workplace. This is Greg speaking personally, in every way. That's the main reason that I try to keep them separated, but the other reason is this notion of Every every now and then I'm going to tell a story where I may remember it differently than an old friend of mine. Or in Walk the Earth, I offer some some words of fairly harsh criticism to people that I would imagine would not enjoy being criticized. And the bottom line is, if they wanted wanted the way the story is being told to put them in a better light, then they should have behaved differently. It's kind of the, the message. The other way that you can interact with inappropriate conversations is on Stitcher. Stitcher Smart Radio is one of the ways that I will access the most recent shows to listen to when I'm on the go. Uh, For me, it's uh, my MP3 player is still Zune, and as long as that uh, particular player that I own holds up, the technology has been outstanding, and I've got no complaints with it. I'm very, very happy. Having 120 gigabytes to carry around on a regular basis uh, really makes it one of the best Christmas gifts I've ever received, to be honest. But for my phone, I've got the ability to more easily access things like Stitcher and the SoundCloud app. So it gives me other flexible options where there's a podcast app available via the version of iPhone that I'm on. But I think many people have talked about the issues with that and given the choice between accessing podcasts through that podcast app or through the Zoom Marketplace. I'm going to pick the Zune Marketplace because I am able to continue to get the uh, the latest podcast episodes refreshed and updated, despite the fact that the marketplace itself is officially dormant. So let's talk about 12 days, because I think most Americans have this notion that I saw on Wikipedia as a pretty good explanation for the difference between the religious ideas of the 12 days of Christmas and the more secular ones. Under the United States heading for the Wikipedia entry called 12 days of Christmas, uh, it goes like this. The traditions of the Twelve Days of Christmas have been largely forgotten in the United States, contributing factors including the popularity of stories by Charles Dickens in the 19th century America with their emphasis on generous gift-giving, introduction to more secular traditions over the past two centuries, such as the American version of Santa Claus, and the rise in popularity of New Year's Eve parties. A New Year's Eve party is pretty far away from what we might call a religious celebration feast. But here's the quote that got me. The first day of Christmas actually terminates the Christmas marketing season for most merchants, as shown by the number of after-Christmas sales that launch on the 26th of December. The commercial calendar has encouraged an erroneous assumption that the 12 days end on Christmas Day and must therefore begin on the 14th of December or thereabouts. So for me, the most important note, and the reason I want to concentrate on this concept of 12 days, is to call that something that I've really struggled with within my family, maybe families plural, for my entire life. And that's this notion of how we celebrate Christmas. So it's not just that there's anything magical about December 14th. If I were to point a finger to the the weekend of December 13th and 14th this year and say, hey, that's the start of the 12 days of Christmas. I think your average consumer standing in line at a department store and waiting to check out with a whole bunch of gifts they bought would not have the first clue. Really, in America, the uh, Thanksgiving holiday weekend, that is really when we think of the Christmas holiday shopping season beginning. And for a lot of stores, the preparation for that, the planogram shifts that account for it, don't just start November 1st. In some cases, they start as early as October 1st. I'm guilty of this. As mentioned before, I've worked in retail stores before, and the Christmas music and the bulk-out displays for the larger, more expensive storage and accessories that would all begin sometime around the first week of October. In fact, I think if I got anywhere near, say, the 14th of October, not the 14th of December, but the 14th of October, without a fully stocked and prominently positioned display of Christmas music, I might have gotten myself in trouble with field management. Uh, Refusing to do so for religious reasons probably would have gotten me fired, as a matter of fact. And, you know, to me, there's a reason for that. If somebody's going to have the latest releases in Christmas music, or their holiday favorites, available for them in their home, whether on a traditional CD player or tape deck, or whether uh, bought and then ripped and loaded onto an MP3 device of some sort, no matter how they do it, for them to have that music available in their home or in their car, or frankly on the go, they're going to need to have purchased it before them. Now, does this mean that having all the Christmas music out and about in October versus November is, is inevitably smart? I have my doubts about that. Uh, in some ways, though, I think you'll see it a lot of times from what we might discuss you know, describe as Christian retailers or retailers that fall with more of a Christian bent because a lot of them will use their planogramming space that otherwise might have been devoted to other holidays, like Halloween in particular, but even Thanksgiving, to give that space to Christmas in part as a protest from some of the more uh, religious right type retail organizations against Halloween as an event. So we see Christmas setting Earlier and earlier every year, the decor in our cities, the decor in our our shopping malls and stores, and we complain about it. But the other problem that I've got is that sometimes the Christmas music starts November first on radio stations, especially uh, like Christian radio stations in particular. Or maybe it's the Thanksgiving Day is the trigger for that. But the Christmas music starting in November means that by the time you get to the twenty sixth of December to Boxing Day, which will be the topic of the next inappropriate conversations. In fact, these two are likely to fall pretty close to each other. Part of the reason that people want to hear an end to holiday music, as soon as we get to the 25th or the 26th, uh, perhaps on uh, Christmas Eve, inside your typical Protestant American church, when close to midnight somebody's holding a recently lit candle in the air and singing the last few verses of Silent Night, there's this notion that when Silent Night is over and you blow out your candle, and the and the sanctuary lights come back on, that at that point, we're done with Christmas music. Because for many people, uh, Christmas ends, or the preparation and celebration of Christmas ends, sometime around the 25th. That when you come to church the following Sunday, that that should be the the end of the holiday tunes, right? Well, the answer to that is not just wrong, but really wrong. There's a season in the church calendar for Advent, which is preparation for Christmas. And with the exception of some hymns like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, a lot of the hymns that we think of as being Christmas carols are songs that come after Christmas. So if you thought about, is it does it make sense to sing like the first Noel three weeks or three months before Christmas? No, it doesn't, because the first Noel is one of those hymns which tells an entire sort of gospel nativity play. All the way through, uh, including the wise men at the end. But perhaps an even more audacious example would be uh, We Three Kings of Orient Are. That is actually an activity that should be sung corresponding to the end of the 12 days being thought of as being marked starting with Christmas Day and ending after. Because that's really a song about the end of this run, this activity. We sometimes think of the manger scene as being static, as if the, the baby Jesus was born. And this is true whether you look at the story as fact or fiction. So uh, I'm not here to make any argument either way about that. I'm here to talk about the 12 days and how the 12 days fit into the construct of the celebration of the Christmas season. So even if you view the entire thing as an inexplicably successful work of fiction, the same principles apply. The baby Jesus is born after a long trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem, there's no more suitable place for them to stay. So they hold themselves up in a uh, sort of a backyard stable slash cave sheltered along the side of a hill where the owner of a particular inn or a couple of inns had shared property in terms of livestock and so forth and so on, and placed in the manger. But the baby Jesus, it's not one night where the baby Jesus is in the manger. And then the shepherds show up, and then they leave. And about an hour and a half later, the kings show up, and then they leave. And then the very next morning, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, flee to Egypt. No, it's likely that more than a year went by during the span of time of those events. This isn't like American Judaism, where if a ritual circumcision is to be performed, the baby stays at home, and the person performing the breast shows up. More likely, Jesus was removed from that, that manger setting, on the first night, it was taken somewhere else. Certainly, uh, circumcision would have likely been performed somewhere else. And so, like anybody living their life, uh, you're you're interacting with a new baby in lots of different ways, and probably in lots of different locations. So, I don't think you can tell an accurate nativity story if the only scene you've got to set the story in is some sort of version of that, of that crèche, of that manger scene. So, the 12 Days talks a little bit, not just about the birth of Jesus and the arrival of the shepherds, but also, maybe a week later, give or take, the performance of that, of that circumcision, which would have happened somewhere else. And a few days after that, uh, Jesus being presented ritually and formally in the temple as the firstborn child of a new family. So all kinds of activities taking place between, call it the 25th of December and February 2nd. Now I, I say that, call it that, from the perspective of, we don't have to be married to any of these calendar dates. There's good research, good reason to believe that probably this entire birth scene happened at a totally different time of year. But the sequence of events is probably true that even after that presentation in the temple, the young infant, being probably far too at risk for a long trip back to Nazareth, was still staying in Bethlehem when the kings showed up months later to present gifts and to see how their interpretation of the stars may have fulfilled. Either their prophecy, or perhaps a combination of their prophecies and Jewish prophecies. Because we need to remember, from a couple of episodes back in Inappropriate Conversations, the Audio Advent booklet, I talked about the fact that when Herod decided that um, as a uh, king of this Jewish territory, he had been betrayed, tricked by these kings, and that somebody who had been born might be born to fulfill a prophecy to take his place. When he decided to kill all the boys in that city to make sure that this potential messiah had been murdered and would never come to power, he told his soldiers to kill every every boy under two years old. A period of years, or at the very least months, had gone by. So what are these 12 days of Christmas? Which I would have assumed maybe everybody would know. But in reality, if you look at retail in America, perhaps nobody knows. Because again, you're going to catch a lot of flack for playing Christmas music in in public or in a very open way between the 25th or 26th of December and the 6th of January, when, of course, that's the point in time when we ought to be doing the go-tell-it-on-the-mountain thing. The song, the hymn, Go-tell-it-on-the-mountain, was written specifically to be sung that many days later. Once more to Wikipedia. The 12 days of Christmas is a festive Christian season, beginning on Christmas Day, the 25th of December, to celebrate the Nativity of Jesus. For some, this period is the same as Tide. For others, Christmas tide lasts a little longer. The twelve days are different from the octave of Christmas, which is an eight-day period from Christmas Day until the first of January. The notion of the octave of Christmas ends with the circumcision moment. The twelfth day of Christmas falls on the fifth or sixth of January, depending on the tradition you follow. Similarly, twelfth night is commonly held to be the fifth of January, but some hold it as the sixth of January. Traditionally, the Feast of Epiphany is celebrated on the 6th of January, which is either the last of the 12 days or the day immediately after them. Now, This is a tradition that is more important in Roman Catholicism and in the Anglican Church, the Church of England, than it is in traditional American Protestant Christianity. But it is nevertheless true that the 12 days of Christmas means something. And even if you decide that it's actually different from the traditional interpretation of the term Tide, it nevertheless means something. For me, you could actually justify celebrating Christmas all the way through January if you wanted to. Does it end with traditional celebration of the arrival of the kings and the Feast of the Epiphany? Or does it end at the moment when the official celebration of Candlemas happens? Now, Candlemas is the idea that it's commemorating the moment that Christ was first presented at the temple as the firstborn son of this family. And there, both a prophet named Simeon and a prophetess named Anna announce with very bold poetic language that this is the messiah come to save all of humanity so that traditionally falls on a, a february 2nd which is interestingly also groundhog day it raises a somewhat comic question in my mind about whether somebody who was willing to toy with blasphemy to make both an educational and an entertaining point could go through a series of different nativity events, until Mary and Joseph finally got it, well, just exactly right. The first thing I think of when I think of Groundhog Day is not weather predictions about the end of spring. It's the film starring Bill Murray and directed by Harold Ramis. That's just me. I've got to be who I am. So to me, one of the things I struggled with growing up was when to decorate and how to celebrate. And I think I could still say that decades later as an adult, I'm still wrestling with these things. For my family as a kid... It was probably viewed as being poor taste to have too much Christmas decorations up prior to Thanksgiving. But what this ultimately meant was that as a holiday weekend, or as a break from school, Thanksgiving would become very hectic. There'd be the, the Tuesday and Wednesday preparation for the meal, the meal and entertaining around surrounding the Thanksgiving Day meal itself on that Thursday. And then Friday, Saturday, and sometimes even Sunday would become a flurry of completely changing, both indoor and outdoor, home decor, trying to get everything just right. So you first end up with everything being just right to celebrate a giant meal that makes a huge mess in lots of rooms of the house, especially the kitchen. And then no sooner have you cleaned up from that, than now you're ripping up essentially the rest of the house, trying to appropriately decorate for Christmas. Now, to me, that's probably a much better answer than people who are putting Christmas lights up on, a, on November 1st or, you know, whatever else that there's no sense of Halloween decor for some homes, they go straight to Christmas. But the other problem that I had, for the bigger problem I had was New Year's Day. I didn't see any logic or reason behind New Year's Day being the day that all that decoration had to come back down and be appropriately boxed up and stored for the next 11 plus months. But that was basically the gag. The reason that I objected to it wasn't necessarily theological. For me... New Year's Day is an important holiday. Growing up as a big college football fan, that was the day when all the bowl games are. Now, today, people who follow American college football would be quick to note that there's important bowl games being played all over the place. uh, Before Christmas, after New Year's Day, even a week or so after New Year's Day. Back then, when I was a kid, the four or five most important college football bowl games were being played on New Year's Day. We didn't have DVRs back then frankly we didn't have vhs players there was no way to record games back then if you wanted to see it you had to sit and watch it and my mother would pick that day of all days as the day when the christmas decorations simply had to come down and there seemed to be more than just an act of convenience or her dislike of sports that drove it now i say this with a little bit of disdain because there's no theological reason whatsoever for there being a January 1st reason, or the month of January reason, why Christmas decor should be removed. In many ways, it's disrespectful to our friends and neighbors who happen to be part of an Eastern Orthodox tradition that we're so aggressively removing all of our Christmas decorations right when they're getting around to actually celebrating Christmas in a formal way. Whether it's January 5th, January 6th, or even in some cases January 7th, that is the point in time when many people within a Christian tradition actually celebrate Christmas itself. So for me, I could see uh, somebody objecting to holding on to that outdoor Christmas decor and even the indoor all the way till February second and the observation of Candle Mass, which we as a family never observed. It's uh, it's not a Protestant tradition. Then we also didn't observe the Feast of the Epiphany either. But for January first to be singled out always seemed a little bit crazy to me, and. More than just a little bit insensitive, when the thing that I was actually looking forward to most that week was probably watching the Orange Bowl. Watching the team from my part of the country, what we then called the Big Eight, playing in the most important game of the year for the winner of that particular college football conference. It seemed like if we hadn't taken care of removing the Christmas decorations on New Year's Eve, which rarely happened because it was my sister's birthday, then removing Christmas decorations was almost always going to mess up college football. Now, in my mom's defense, usually the way the American work and school calendars work is that the time you have off, the Christmas break, as we used to call it, would end with New Year's Day. So you'd have New Year's Eve off, you'd have New Year's Day off of school, but you could be going back to school the very next day. Unless New Year's Day fell on a Saturday or a Friday, you were definitely going to be in a situation where on the 2nd or the 3rd of January you were going back to school, so I'm certain that this domestic workforce, you know, having all the kids at home and, you know, and all the, you know, the focus on let's do this. Let's remove all these decorations. It, there was a really utilitarian reason why it needed to fall on January 1st. But in many, many cases, it took a lot of the joy for me out of decorations. I found myself putting up those decorations way more than the 12 days before Christmas, knowing that it was just going to become a problem for me way less than the 12 days after. So, for me, 12 days are important. 12 days are important because, in some ways, my interest in Christmas songs don't actually kick in until I get very close to the 23rd or 24th of December. And I'd prefer for the celebration itself not to be concentrated in a two- or three-day span where it's socially unacceptable to actually celebrate the 12 days of Christmas by continuing to look at that decor, or listen to that music, or even watch those movies the day after.
1: Nerd Hurdles, where every week Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be
0: afraid, but you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd This, this is, is simply syndicated.com. Syndicated. I have already named Jacob Rellinger as a different drummer, and on the most recent inappropriate conversation show, The Holiday Jukebox, I featured some of his winter holiday-themed music prominently, kind of as the intro and the outro music. I'm delighted today, in fact, that I've been able to get back to the regular theme provided by Kevin McLeod via his website, in Incompetech. So, that's good. But part of the reason that I called this originally, the idea was maybe questioning the consumerism of Christmas and talking about the what it meant if the 12 days fell before, or even this notion of 12 days of post-Christmas sales. Because I can tell you that working in stores... The most stressful day of the year, by far, at least in a, in a record music retail store, the most stressful day of the year was the 26th of December. And that was the day where you did fewer sales than even probably the 23rd and the 24th on average, but you did a ton more of the business. Because for every positive register-rung sale you generated, you probably generated a negative or a net-net refund repurchase situation, because that was the day that you saw everybody who got a gift they weren't happy with, or didn't get the things that they really wanted on their list, or complaining because the thing that you know, so-and-so bought their kid had explicit language. It was always going to be a really challenging day. So even that post-Christmas sales idea baked in with this notion of consumerism. And to me, that always resonated with me from the context of the Nerd Hurdles podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts dealing with pop culture and Things that are of interest to people who have sort of geeky tastes, but the thing I wanted to focus on from a podcast perspective this time isn't necessarily nerd hurdles. I want to look instead to movies you should see and focus our different drummer on one of the uh, one of the characters. Let's call him, who's featured prominently in a recent movies you should see episode. So as we get to the different drummer segment, let me just introduce a little bit of some navigation to you. If you wanted to hear my opinion on the film A Christmas Story. I'm not going to rehash any lengthy review of that here, because you can actually find it on a podcast released only one year ago, December 23rd, 2013. There is a Movies You Should See review with a panel discussion on A Christmas Story. It is uh, available still on www.simplysyndicated.com. From there, if you navigate to the Shows tab, from the Shows tab to Movies You Should See, you might have to click the older entries button to get to page two of that list. But for the December 23rd entry a year ago, there is this movies you should see discussion of a Christmas story that included me as the lone American in the group. It's a, also a positive review. So if you're worried about, well, you know, I, I think I don't like about film critics and criticism in general is that a lot of times it trashes the things I love. No, this was this was a very warm review of the show. And I offer a good deal of opinions there as probably the only person in the panel, as I recall, who actually remembered seeing the movie when it first came out into theaters. Because back then, I was working in movie theaters, and one of the movie theaters that I was working in was showing A Christmas Story. So for my different drummer this week, and for the intro and outro clips, rather than a drummer-style track from Kevin McLeod, I'm going to let Gene Shepard speak for himself as the different drummer, in his own words and in the characterization provided by the, the 1983 film, a Christmas story.
1: You're full of beans and so is your old man. Oh yeah. Yeah. Says who? Says me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like well, double dare you. The exact exchange and nuance of phrase in this ritual is very important. Huh, are you kidding? Stick my tongue to that stupid pole that's dumb. That's because you know it'll stick. You're full of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like well, double dog dare you. Now it was serious. A double dog dare. What else was left but a triple dare you? And finally, the coup de grace of all dares, the sinister triple really dog good. dare. I triple dog dare you! Hmm. Schwartz created a slight breach of etiquette by skipping the triple dare and going right for the throat. All right, all right. Okay. Enjoying. I'm going, I'm going. Flick's spine stiffened, his lips curled in a defiant sneer. There was no going back now. <laughs> this is not. Na- <laughs>
0: In that Movies You Should See review a year ago, I probably didn't put it this way, but it's certainly what I meant. I would not have looked twice or even thought it odd if narrator and author Gene Shepard had been given a nomination for either an Academy Award or a Golden Globe or a People's Choice as Best Supporting Actor. To me, his voiceovers are the best part of what's otherwise an outstanding film. So if you take a movie that I think generally has been widely accepted as good, I think probably great. And say he's the best part in it. Not just he's the best part in it, because the child actors and the solid performances that Bob Clark as a director got from that child actor cast uh, are delivering, delivering the goods. But more because Gene wrote them. But Gene Shepard, I think, took the movie to the next level by providing outstanding narration. Usually, when I hear that a film is going to rely heavily on narration, as a critic, I wince a little bit. I've braced myself for the disappointments of the past, and I'm not necessarily a fan of, of a movie that is incapable of telling its story within the art of filmmaking without using images or dialogue or you know, anything that you see. It's a visual medium. You ought to be able to talk about the chill and the wind being oppressive by showing it rather than saying it. But there are points in the movie where we, uh, Gene Shepard's ability to explain what is happening... Um, From speaking words from his own memory of himself as a child while showing on screen the child version of himself, it just absolutely works. From the uh, trivia section of IMDb, it says this, Shepard's book, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. Which the film is partly based on, is a collection of short stories that Shepard wrote for Playboy magazine during the 1960s, including the ones about the tongue sticking to the flagpole, our different drummer intro, and eating Christmas dinner at a Chinese restaurant. That, by the way, is a a tradition that my family has picked up. Christmas Eve dinner, uh, that is. The subplot of the mangy dogs constantly harassing the old man was taken from another one of his short story collections. That one, I believe, actually set at Easter when the Ralph character was not Ralphie, but Ralph, because he was a a bit older. So, Gene Shepard, responsible for the words. If you wanted to read them yourself, I think you're going to find a lot of rewards there. He's a very good author. And I question whether I would describe them as short stories they may be as much about the concept of these being nostalgic essays, for want of a better word. It all comes down to the question of whether or not we view them as fact or fiction. If we view them as a fictional betrayal, then short story is definitely the way to talk about them. But if he really is, in some cases, remembering somewhat accurately, even if he's changed a few names to protect the innocent or not, maybe it's more the kind of storytelling that I'm partial to. On the Wikipedia page for Gene Shepard, I want to start at the bottom instead of the top and look a little bit at the legacy of the man. Shepard is credited as being an oral narrator with a style that was a precursor to Spalding Gray and Garrison Keillor. Do not be surprised if one day Spal- Spalding Gray is uh, mentioned as a tragic, different drummer, because I believe that he was a genuine talent, working both in audio and visual media, and yes... There's no doubt that you can see the influence of Shepard on Spalding Gray's approach to telling stories. Seinfeld is perhaps even a better example. In one of the audio commentaries for a Seinfeld TV show, Jerry Seinfeld said this, He really formed my entire comic sensibility. I learned how to do comedy from Gene Shepard. And there's examples of that. In fact, if you think of the anecdotal nature and the nostalgic view of the things that Seinfeld does as being maybe a more recent form of anecdote, or even a recent nostalgia, it's still kind of a very similar idea. The one that surprised me on the trivia that I saw was that in a New York Magazine interview, Donald Fagan, the, one of the formers of Steely Dan, who produced a solo album, a very successful solo album called The Nightfly, said that the the figure, the character of The Nightfly was based uh, on Gene Shepard, inspired by Shepard. So, who was Gene Shepard? He's listed as an American raconteur, a radio and TV personality, a writer and an actor, who is often referred to by the nickname Shep. With a career that spanned decades, Shepard is best known to modern audiences from the film A Christmas Story, which he narrated and co-scripted. Born on the south side of Chicago, he was raised in Hammond, Indiana, where he graduated from Hammond high school in 1939. So we already know that his work could be called fiction because it isn't pure straight-up nostalgia. If he graduated from high school in 1939, then he's much older than the boy f- you know, featured in the movie A Christmas Story, who around 1939 would have been much, much younger, still in elementary school, and still looking for that, that Red Ryder BB gun. Again, to talk about the strength of his work as a voiceover, uh, in this case maybe voiceover, drawing from his experience, as a radio personality, doing a live performance in that medium. But the voiceover trying to explain what happened when he told the parents in his story, and in the film A Christmas Story, that he was interested in having a Red Ryder BB gun as his primary Christmas gift one year. Well, I just refer to this as the lobster's response.
1: They looked at me as if I had lobsters crawling out of my ears.
0: Again, to encourage you to take a look back at that movie as You Should See episode, I had the pleasure of being on the show with somebody who's fe- who's been featured in the past on Inappropriate Conversations. I'll say that again because it's probably a little surprising. We think of this as being a kind of a one-man show, and that's generally true, but not exclusively true. My second pass at Valentine's Day was released on February 11th, 2012, Inappropriate Conversations 81, called Singing a Song for Lovers. That included, right as its intro, a complete responsive reading of the book Song of Songs or Song of Solomon from the Old Testament in the manner that I believe it was intended to be read as poetry where both male and female and friends speaking voices are included. I was the male voice for that. Uh, My friend Karen, who does the artwork for the show, was the female voice for that. And the voice of the friends came from the United Kingdom, someone named Laura Fudge. And Laura at the time, of course, now married at the time, not, not named Fudge. But Laura was you know, kind enough to be the outsider's voice that we needed. And I thought, well, what a great way to have an outsider's voice, where instead of asking the listener to decipher between the male and female voices and understand this other voice as being either a group or somebody who was easily distinguished as different, more with a voice with an English accent, and what I think is really one of the great English accents, as a matter of fact. But Laura and I had a laugh. During the conversation about the movie A Christmas Story, because her last name is now Fudge. And one of the key comic moments in the film was the moment when the Ralphie character uh, in a, in a, just a, blurts out unexpectedly a curse word in the presence of his father and gets himself in trouble. Of course, he, he does say a word that starts with the letters F and U, but doesn't end with D, G, E. But for the film version, it's related as Fudge. And of course, that brings our narrator back in, talking about. His experience of you know, not using that word, using a different word, kind of you know elbowing the, the naive listener in the ribs to make sure you understood that Ralphie had actually dropped the F-bomb in front of his father. But that led to this exchange, which again, the something that a character inside a show, living in that moment as a child, getting his mouth washed out with soap, couldn't explain. It had to come from the voice of years of, of experience and wisdom and reflection in other words, it had to be done by a narrator. and In this case, I think Gene Shepard, in the history of voiceover film narration, probably the best of the best.
1: Over the years, I got to be quite a connoisseur, of so. My personal preference is for Lux, but I found Palm olive had a nice, piquant after-dinner flavor. Heady, but with just a touch of mellow smoothness.
0: When you watch the film for the first time, there are moments where you wonder, uh, could this turn violent? there's a, a scene where a mom calls one of the other boys in school talking to an, the mom of one of the other friends of Ralphie because Ralphie is more or less, you know, blurted out inaccurately, I assume, that he first heard that fudge word from, you know, somebody else in his class. And and while you're listening to the mom talk to Schwartz's mom on the phone, Schwartz is clearly taking a fairly serious beating. He's, he's getting whipped and whipped good for, you know, what he said or what he taught somebody else to say. And so you think, wow, did they capture all this pretty accurately? And I think so. To me, the moment that I get the most nostalgic about when it comes to the use of language in the film version of A Christmas Story is the father's attempts to express himself angrily and colorfully without actually really using any of the bad words. My father would manage it by... What Shepherd calls stringing together a tapestry of obscenity, but doing it only partially. So only by putting some of the words out there, and you know, starting with mother, but not ending with anything F, or or you know, just kind of using the right vowels and consonants, but not in the right order. And the more angry he get, the less intelligible he became. Because I think he knew that if he gave himself permission to speak freely, he might be the one getting his mouth washed out with soap by my angry mom. Now not only angry at whatever made my dad angry, but angry at my dad for being angry about it. Believe me, this is a pattern I'm familiar with. Because this is part of my family history, it's almost genetic. I find myself often as not being uh, somebody who uh, makes people angry or at least leaves them disappointed. Not so much because of what I did, but because how I respond to what I did. And here's, as we close this different drummer segment, here is the character of the old man doing battle with the damper. (laughs)
1: in the heat of battle my father wove a tapestry of obscenity that as far as we know is still hanging in space over Lake Michigan Hi, everybody. Rich here. You know, one of the best things about Simply Syndicated is the great community of listeners we've got and all of the things you guys do to help us out. Something you could do that helps us spread the word about our shows is to let people know that you're listening on Facebook and Twitter. All our episodes have sharing buttons on them so you can tell your friends about us with just a few clicks of the mouse. Just visit our website at simplysyndicated.com and click the sharing buttons to help spread the word.
0: My father has been gone more than two decades now, gone to a form of leukemia, and I wonder sometimes if my memories of Christmas are not focused on him in ways that they wouldn't be if we'd had more of those intervening years together. My nostalgia for that particular moment in a Christmas story where the father is weaving a tapestry of obscenities that hangs in the air and could be read if only you had the ability to read those words, that concept calls to mind my father. One of the things that I'd like to do this Christmas season is something I did in words, in a blog post the very first year. And that's call out Super Happy Fun Time and the annual Christmas Eve episode. It is going to happen again this year, which is great. Because for me, the Christmas Eve service is actually going to be scheduled and celebrated on Tuesday, December 23rd with my church. Meaning that December 24th is arguably wide open been left wide open on purpose so that members of our congregation who want to walk the earth and experience a worship service with another congregation have that day available or those who want to spend it with family i intend to spend part of it with my online family at 11 p.m. england time let's call it which for me is 6 p.m. eastern time they plan to go live whether super happy fun time starts promptly at around the 6 eastern standard time or whether it's somewhere between 6 and 7 i can guarantee you They'll be live before 7 p.m. You can get to them also on www.simplysyndicated.com. For the page that would feature that, I think it's along the the top bar, the radio entry. is probably the right way to click in and listen to the audio. The Shaft Christmas Special, the Richard and Allison Super Happy Fun Time Christmas Eve event, uh, starting, again, 6 p.m. or so, our time. That intends to be one of the ways that I intend to spend Christmas Eve this year. In the past, it's always been a struggle to to listen in for the entire live broadcast because somewhere around 7 o'clock, I have a tendency to be inside some worship service with some church. And this is the first year where my church isn't going to be having a worship service on that day and at that time. So that's where I intend to be. Why? Why is that so important to me? Well, I'm one of those people who's lived a life that says that Family is not just people that you have a blood relationship with. I believe that foster parents are very much parents to the kids that they have in their home during the time those kids are in their home. That something happens during the adoption process, where even if you have parents who've had a child by natural childbirth and then adopt another child later, that that adopted child is inevitably going to become part of that family and not always just an asterisk at the bottom of the page. I believe this. I believe that I have formed familial relationships with people who are not part of my family line or part of my in-laws family line because our shared experiences, our shared interests, our love for one another is that strong. I would include this online community as being very similar. I've got friends that I mentioned in Inappropriate Conversations 142 is coming from all corners of the United Kingdom to spend a little time with me when we had the opportunity to take a vacation there. That was a physical, face-to-face confirmation that I didn't really even need the confirmation, but it was nevertheless a confirmation of a relationship that was already there and had already built tremendous strength simply online. If there's only one episode every year of Richard and Allison's Super Happy Fun Time, it's the Christmas Eve episode. And i got to tell you, if you wanted to eavesdrop Drop as a lurker from the outside unfamiliar with the show, you might be a little bit surprised. It's not just an episode with... Presence being opened and uh, nostalgic stories being told and, and laughter and warmth, there's genuine tears that have been shed on more than one occasion, including the very first Super Happy Funtime episode where a friend of mine named Rick had just experienced the death of his mom and this one, a friend of mine named Lee, has just experienced the death of his dad. I want to be there for that. If I can't be there for that, it could actually be something that is going to disappoint me for all the 12 days after Christmas. It's an important piece of another kind of family. And I'm telling you about it now on an episode I intend to release at least 24 hours before the moment. So that if you're one of those people who picks up an inappropriate conversation show and listens right away, or listens right away this time because it obviously has a holiday theme, you may still have time if you choose. Because by starting at 6 or 7 at night here in Eastern Standard Time, it's over well in advance that even if you wanted to do a traditional midnight mass-type service, you have plenty of time to get there. We're going to be looking at our Christmas Eve activities being scheduled a whole 24 hours earlier. Because as I mentioned earlier, I don't believe there's anything magic about December 25th. All the evidence tells me that, that Jesus was born on a different day. It's the day that we observe it. So I'm going to observe Christmas Eve on the 23rd this year. And I'm going to observe the Christmas Eve Super Happy Fun Time on the 24th. When we come back after the holiday, I'm going to take a look at Boxing Day and another situation where a traditional terminology may not mean the same thing that I always thought it meant. So I started here with 12 days saying, hey, 12 days doesn't mean what you all think it meant. Next time I'm going to talk about my ignorance and Boxing Day not meaning what I thought it always meant. In the meantime, though, have a very Merry Christmas and thanks for listening.